Well, good morning, church family. It is good to see so many of you here on uh, the first day of Holy Week. Also, uh, first day of spring, well, I guess spring break started Friday, but uh, lots of people coming and going. Uh, Next week, we have uh, Easter, and we are throwing a whole bunch of extra chairs in here. And those extra chairs are for your friends. And uh, so I just encourage you to grab some of those invite cards. Folks are willing to go to church on Easter Sunday, and here's some good news. And so I just encourage you to pick a few of those cards up and pass them around as you encounter people this week. But it's Palm Sunday today, and we're going to talk about what happened on that first Palm Sunday. Matt talked about it a little. Didn't Matt do a good job? Thank Matt for me. I'm doing a good job this morning. I really appreciate that. Um, When we moved to Wenatchee in 2010, we moved there to uh, pastor a church and uh, my wife and I were getting a tour of the town as we were sort of exploring uh, the community by some folks that had lived there for a while. And as we're driving around downtown Wenatchee, we noticed chairs that are lining the streets uh, everywhere. I think we have a picture of it here, of, the, of that. Uh, yeah, and uh, the, when at, that's the Chelan County Courthouse. And Wenatchee has a big festival every year called the Apple Blossom Festival. Some of you may have been to it at one time or another. But there were chairs up and down one of the main drags, Orondo Avenue, uh, just wall to wall. And uh, we looked at our host that was driving us, and I said, is there a parade this week? And she said, no, there's a parade in a month and a half. It, it turns out Wenatchee really gets into their parade, uh, really love their parade, which seems really weird to me. They say everybody loves a parade. How many here love a parade? Yeah, so that's clearly a lie. Um, I, uh, I'm not a big parade guy. Like, I've seen people walk before, and to me a parade is just like, you know, organized walking. Uh, with maybe a soundtrack, you know, and so it's, it's all right, you know, it's okay. I like a marching band, I suppose. That's kind of cool. We had a, we did a, a great float this year. Gabby and Terry and a team put together a float this year and a Christmas parade here in town that represented the church. That's kind of cool. I want to give you a little history lesson this morning. We're going to talk about a parade. And I think understanding sort of the historical context of parades in the Roman world will give some of you a better insight into what happened on that triumphal entry. Did you know that Rome, ancient Rome, had a parade that was called a triumph, okay? And the triumph was in celebration of victory on the battlefield, okay? And so it was a very commonplace thing in the Roman Empire. And the way it looked was pretty specific. And I think if we understand what a Roman triumph was, and then we contrast it to what Jesus' triumphal entry was, you'll see two very different depictions of kingdoms. One is the kingdom of man, One is the kingdom of God. Does everybody understand? So what we're trying to do this morning, look at two different parades and let us kind of glean a little insight into maybe what those parades tell us about Jesus Christ. So in ancient Rome, this this most prominent parade was called a triumph or a triumphal entry. It followed a certain path. After conquering a foreign land, Uh, The military leaders would return, Caesar would return if he had gone off. Uh, There would be uh, captives, kind of the spoils of war would be brought back. And the way it looked was this. First, the Roman Senate, headed by the magistrates, would lead, followed by trumpeters, 
to announce the arrival. Carts laden with the spoils of war, at times vast fortunes would follow, then followed by more musicians. White bulls and oxen for sacrifice would come next. They would also parade elephants and rare animals or exotic flora from the conquered country. Next would come the arms and insignia of the leaders of the conquered enemy. The enemy leaders themselves and their relatives and other captives would be marched in front of the crowd. Guards and bodyguards would follow in a single file, their faces wreathed with laurel. Then came the conquering general or emperor himself in a circular chariot drawn by four horses. He was attired in, gold and bull, in a gold embroidered robe and a flowered tunic. He held a laurel bow and a bow in his right hand, a scepter in his left, and wore a laurel wreath on his head, joined by adult sons and officers and the entire body of infantry with laurel-adorned spears. They'd then end uh, in the uh, temple of the Roman gods and make a sacrifice to the god Jupiter. Okay, so you follow that? It's this major spectacle of a conquering army and a humiliated, vanquished foe being marched through the streets. Jesus' parade days before his death was a pronounced contrast from a Roman parade. But interestingly enough, it follows certain similar patterns. So this, this morning is really a sermon about a king or kings. Caesar the emperor and Jesus the king. And how they are different. By the way, we still have Caesar. Worldly power. So this is a message this morning about kings, and therefore it's a message about kingdoms, okay? And that each one of us has a decision to make. Which kingdom we're going to call home? Which kingdom is going to be our kingdom? By the way, there's still a lot of pull for those of us, even in the church, to follow the kingdom of Caesar to follow the kingdom of worldly power. Out of respect for God's word, let's stand this morning. I'm going to read the story of the triumphal entry from Matthew 21, looking at the first 11 verses. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, says, say, the Lord says to the, uh, uh, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken of in the prophet. See, uh, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then Jesus' disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed him. They brought the donkey and colt, placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Lord Jesus, would you speak to our hearts this morning? God, would we this morning, as your people, see ourselves as a part of your kingdom? And God, would we commit this morning to adopting your kingdom values, your kingdom principles in our own lives. Help each one of us this morning to examine our life in light of your word. And God, 
where we're different from your word, where we're different from your precepts, where we're different from your commands, where we're different from your encouragement, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, change us. Change us so that we would be more reflective of you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So this morning, we're gonna look at a radically different kind of day, and therefore a radically different kind of king. Palm Sunday illustrates a hugely different view of power. This morning, we're gonna see a, a, a markedly different view of what power truly is. You see, we live in this world of flesh and blood, right? And that tends to be how we define power in the physical realm. What this story this morning reminds us is that there is something going on that is unseen to our eyes, but it's very real and is more powerful than any earthly ruler, any earthly king. Something is happening. God is stirring. God is working. And we're invited to be a part of that thing. The Roman triumph was the highest honor granted to emperors and generals in the Roman world. We described it just a few minutes ago. Jesus' procession was very different. Think about some of the ways that Jesus' procession was different. Caesar's triumph happened in Rome, okay? And Rome would be representative here of earthly power, of dynasties, of man-made kings and rulers. Rome would be symbolic here of military might, of force by spear, and bloody defeat. Jesus' processional was into Jerusalem, the location of the temple and the heart of the Jewish faith. In fact, when Jerusalem is talked about in Scripture, oftentimes it is used as imagery for the kingdom of God. You have Rome, the power of man, and you have Jerusalem, the power of God. Jesus, again, signifying the kingdom of God is at hand, and we're called to be kingdom citizens. Amen. Jesus did not make his entry as the victor of war. Remember this. Rome, when they're marching in, right? When they're marching in to Rome, they are celebrating, in all likelihood, a bloody battle where lives were taken previously in the past, right? What is Jesus doing? Catch this. Jesus is marching to death, to his own death, right? symbolizing and, 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 and making real the idea that power is not by the bloody defeat of our enemies, but victory comes through the cross of Jesus Christ and the sacrificing of blood. He's marching towards the cross. True victory doesn't come through violence, but through sacrifice and humility. He wasn't on a horse and chariot, a circular chariot and four horses, right? What is he on? He's on a donkey, which is an illustration of humility because donkeys are symbolic of commonality. They're not a sign of prestige, right? Donkeys are, are pack animals. They're not war animals. They're a symbol of peace. Now, Jesus' triumphal entry, by the way, does mirror a Roman triumph in some ways. It takes place at the beginning of a festival. 
which was typical in Rome, but for the Jew, it took place at the beginning of Passover, and Passover is not about war. Passover is about remembering the way God spared the lives of his people and freed them from slavery. So this cross that Jesus is approaching is going to be the ultimate liberator. It is going to free us. And then, like we mentioned earlier, the Roman parade would end uh, in the Roman temple, and a sacrifice would be made to Jupiter. Jesus is also bringing an offering to the temple. The offering is himself. The offering is himself. So what is the lesson for us in 2023? In a couple years, I'll celebrate 30 years in ministry. In my lifetime, I've seen something happen in the Western church that is deeply disturbing to me. We have fallen in love in many places with the power of Rome. We still want our pound of flesh. We still want earthly power. We hunger after political power. It's interesting. Yeah, remember, it wasn't just the power of Rome that Jesus rejected, right? It was not the power of Rome only that Jesus rejected. He also rejected what the Jewish people wanted here. And what did they want? They wanted man-made power. Their vision of a Messiah, their vision of a deliverer was a military or political power that would overthrow and vanquish their enemies. Jesus' march to the cross communicates a whole bunch about his view of power. And here's one of the toughest verses in all of Scripture, also found in Matthew, Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross to follow me. Remember, in the first century, when, you, you know, when we talk about crosses, there's a whole bunch of us in here that have one around our neck, right? We put them on the wall. I'm not opposed to these things. But our view of the cross, I think, has been watered down. If you are a first century Jewish person or Gentile listening to the words of Jesus Christ and you hear him say, hey, you want to you follow me? Well, you're going to have to be nailed to a cross. It's pretty tough stuff, isn't it? You're going to have to die to yourself. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be? For someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory and his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Folks, we're still trying to gain the whole world. We're still chasing after people who are trying to make as much as they can to build empires. And Jesus says the way of the cross, the way of that cross is so much different. It's revolutionary. It's live for others. Now don't hear me wrong this morning. Church, I think it's incredibly important that we stand against sin. And as a, as a, the world has lost its mind on sin. We can't even define sin anymore. The Bible does. But let me say this. We cannot love Jesus and hate people, even people we consider sinners. It is not a Christian value to own our enemy on social media. It is not okay to hate a guy with a different view. Screaming at our enemies is not the Jesus way, nor is pursuing power. It's so interesting what Jesus is rejecting here. 
If you look at his life, sure, he stood against the power of Rome. It was an ungodly power. But he also stood against the power and judgmentalism and fundamentalism of the religious leaders of the day who had written down rule after rule after rule, some 600 rules, and said, you got to follow these. And their hearts were black and ugly. Jesus is something remarkably different. The group that Jesus seemed to have the most compassion for were those who were sinners, sometimes the ugliest of sinners, who were outcasts and broken and isolated. He stood against Rome. He he stands against the Pharisees. But the sinner, he stands for the sinner. And he comes to want to release him from their sin. Let me just say this. I think this is so important. And I've tried to really implement this in my life in the last year. Sharing Jesus' ministry without using Jesus' methods will rarely succeed. Sharing Jesus' message without using Jesus' methods will rarely succeed. Look at how Jesus shared himself and then shared Jesus that way. I was at a, I was at a baseball game with Bill James on, uh, on uh, Thursday night. We were standing in line waiting to get into the stadium. And there were guys with Bible verses on placards and bullhorns yelling at people the Jesus way, right? Nope. It's so much deeper. It's so much different. So what might that look like? Well, it looks like this. We live like the kingdom of God. We don't live like values now. We live like God's values. Jesus is establishing his kingdom on Palm Sunday. He says, my kingdom looks different than the Roman kingdom, and you live like you're in my kingdom. Not like you're in the Roman kingdom. Although Jesus entering, now, let, let me say this. Palm Sunday gives us this, this unique insight into Jesus' priorities. Okay, he gives us this, this unique insight. Although Jesus entering the temple isn't a part of the text we just read, uh, I want to look at it. It's an important component of the triumphal entry. Sometimes we forget that Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, and Jesus tipping over tables in the temple happened on the same day. They happened on the same day. And I think both tell us a whole bunch about Jesus. Verse, 20, or verse 12 of Matthew 21. Jesus entered the temple courts, drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Jesus is communicating a couple of powerful things here. First off, he's quoting a passage of scripture back in the book of Isaiah that really tells us what the kingdom of God looks like, okay? So on this most, one of these most important final days of his life, when he's tipping things over in the temple, he's quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 56, verses one through seven. This is what the Lord says. Be just and fair to all. Do what is right and good, for I'm coming to rescue you and to display my righteousness among you. Blessed are all those who are careful to do this. Blessed are those who honor my Sabbath days of rest and keep themselves from doing wrong. Verse 3, don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let us be a part of his people. 
And don't let eunuchs say, I'm a dried up tree and no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says. I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath day holy and who choose those who do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is a never lasting one. It will never disappear. Verse six, I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offering and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The kingdom of God, folks, is for all people. Any person who calls on the name of the Lord is welcome in the kingdom of God regardless of where they're from, what they look like, what their hair is like, what the music they listen to is, regardless of what news channel they watch. Jesus came for all people, and therefore, church, we have to stop yelling at all people and love all people, even when they disagree with us, and find creative ways to love them more, even when they hurt us. Because that's the overarching message of the cross. the foreigner, the mutilated. He's come to bless, and he wants us to be a people who bless others. He illustrates his priorities by calling out those who have abused people. It's interesting if you look back on, the, on what happened in the temple with Jesus, he specifically targets those who are selling the doves. Now, people came to Jerusalem to make sacrifice, those who are of means would sacrifice what? Sheep, goat, a mammal. But according to the law, for the poor, they were allowed to sacrifice a bird, a dove. They were allowed to sacrifice a lesser animal because they didn't have a lot of means. And so here you had people setting up business and taking advantage of the poor who had come to worship profiteering, once again, the religious pursuing power and wealth. In doing so, they were preventing people from worship. By the way, that's a pretty serious sin, inhibiting someone else from coming to the Lord. And Jesus defines what his church is going to look like, and he says it's going to be a house of prayer where foreigners and eunuchs can come. I am concerned that when people see the church of Jesus Christ, they see something that doesn't look much like Jesus Christ, and I so want, by the way, church, you're, you're trending in the right direction. But it is going to require us wholeheartedly as individuals to fully commit to the message of Jesus Christ, even when it makes us uncomfortable. We don't adopt the ways of the world. Our morality is going to look wildly different on areas of sexuality, on areas of wealth, on areas, it's just going to look different on areas of care for the vulnerable, on areas of care for our, our enemies. Our, our, our ethic is going to look so much different. It's why Peter calls us strangers and aliens. We don't look like anything else. What do we look like? We look as close to heaven as we possibly can, but we do it right now. That's what we're designed to usher in.
It's a Christian missiologist who names Alan Hirsch. I read him quite a bit. A lot of Christian leaders do. I agree with him on a lot of things. I disagree with him on some, but I, I did think this was a good quote. Unless the church is equipping believers to embrace the values and vision of the kingdom of God and turn away from the materialism, the consumerism, the greed, the power of the present age, it not only abandons the biblical mandate, it's rendered missionally ineffective. We gotta look different. We've gotta be different. We've gotta sound different. We've gotta act different. Palm Sunday shows us a different kind of savior. We need to be a different kind of people. We need to be a different kind of people. As I mentioned earlier, the Jewish people were busy looking for the Messiah to come in ways they wanted. They were hungering for a political ruler who would rise up and overthrow the Roman government using violence if necessary. They were pining for freedom. But if you look at the course of human history, you know that the freedom they were pining for, even if they had gotten their way, who would likely have been temporary freedom. Rulers and empires come and go. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, they were wondering, is this the moment somebody takes over? Instead, Jesus' arrival disrupted the way they were doing things. He calls out their act of injustice. He, he weeps for Jerusalem. He's upset at the way they were abusing people, using the poor, denying worship to vulnerable people. He healed people who were considered outsiders and unclean, the lame, the blind, the poor. It's interesting, you know, if you look at these final days, you see one... Uh, there seems to be a group of people that always kind of got who Jesus was. It's the children, right? The children recognized who he was and what he was doing, and he welcomed them. His rebuke was for the, the power structures, both religious and political. One of the things I'm guilty of in my own life is that I paint a certain picture of what Jesus looks like. Oftentimes, without really having looked at scripture. By the way, this, what I'm about to say can apply to everybody, left and right, along the divide. We grew up in a certain household in a certain way. We reject, certain, we reject a certain upbringing or accept a certain upbringing. And you know, there's an old saying that, that uh, you know, God, created man in the beginning God created man in his own image and ever since that time we've been returning the favor we've been creating God in our image right so the risk I run is turning Jesus into somebody that just, that just looks like the, a preferred Mike Malman a desired Mike Malman like me at my best but here's the problem with that there's a lot in my life, a lot in my politics, a lot in my preferences, a lot in my desires that looks very little like Jesus. And so I need Jesus to come into my life and start turning over some tables. It's not easy, right? It's hard. 
One of the things, if we're going to be a kingdom people, look, again, there is sin in the world. In my lifetime, I, I can't recall a time where sin seems to be more overwhelming or winning. But here's the other thing I know. I can't change anyone else. The Spirit of God can. And if I'm going to be effective out in the world being a kingdom citizen, I need to start with me and let Jesus come in and start overturning the things in my life that don't look like him. To start radically changing those things. Are we trying to align Jesus with us to make him look like just a better version of us? Are we trying to let Jesus come in and just turn us upside down and make us something different? He wants to overturn the places of idolatry in our heart to make room for healing. He wants us to be formed into his image rather than forming him into the image we want. He wants us to look out and, and look at where the kingdom of God may be moving and then jump in and join him in those areas, even if it makes us a little uncomfortable. How many of you are looking forward to the kingdom of God? Yeah. Yeah. Here's one of the mistakes the church has made. The kingdom of God is right now. The kingdom of God is right now. And into a world with, what, 7 billion people that seems to be massively messed up, where we have dangerous men in positions of power in countries around the globe, saber-rattling, where we have people starving, where we have sin running rampant and destroying our young people who are embracing it, but also our old people who embrace it. And he says, I came to die for you. I am establishing my kingdom. You, the church of Jesus Christ, I am setting free in our particular context in Centralia, Washington to look like what the kingdom of God looks like right now. And some of you might say, well, that's just too lofty. Nope. It's the command. We need to look radically different. We need to be different. You don't need to look forward to the kingdom of God. You don't become a kingdom citizen when you go to heaven. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are already a kingdom citizen and you are called to look like the kingdom of God right now. But that creates a challenge for you. Are you prepared to look like Jesus? As the worship team comes this morning, as we, as we prepare to close, let me ask you this. What parade do you want to be a part of? What parade do you want to be a part of? Where, where do you want to march? Who do you want to march with? You know, we march with a lot of things in our society, but I want to be a part of something eternal, something that's going to last forever. And if I'm going to be effective in that role, I got to change me. By the way, I just stand up here when I say these things, I'm just, I'm one of you. A lot of people tend to glorify uh, the pastor. My wife's here this morning. If you want to get an accurate impression, you're welcome to talk to her after the service. You know, I got a finger pointing at you. I got three pointing back at me. 
Mike Malman needs to look more like Jesus. There are times in my life where I'm, usually when I'm watching the news, where I start to not look like Jesus. I need to look like Jesus. And that calls for just a radical reorientation of the way I'm doing things. How do you need to change? How do we need to look more like Jesus?